Welcome again to the Carolina Chronicles podcast bonus episode. Here we have the first of what we hope will be many more episodes with the incredibly informative Rob Chumley. He is a adjunct history professor at a local college. He spent time as a local magistrate judge and he is just it's so fascinating to listen to. He has just got all kinds of information that you know we found fascinating and we hope you all you all enjoy so let's not delay let's get into it good morning rob good to see you ann how you doing my friend rob chumley's with me today talking about the history of south carolina i bet y'all didn't even know anything happened in south carolina (laughs) (laughs) yeah I went through I went through public school my entire life, and the only thing that I ever learned about that happened in South Carolina was there was the Battle of Cowpens, and we were close to Kings Mountain. Mm-hmm. But other than that, there was no Revolutionary War here, and I used to think how wonderful that must have been to have lived in South Carolina then and not have to worry about it because everything happened in New England, Concord, Lexington, the shot heard around the world and all mm-hmm. that. How nice that must have been. And I grew up my pretty much my entire life thinking that nothing happened in South Carolina. Tell me how wrong I could have been. Well, you're exactly right, and there's so much that happened in South Carolina that people aren't aware of. And, you know, I kind of wanted to use a little story to illustrate the point I'm making here. Um, I've got a good friend who was a public school teacher for years and years in Greenville County here in South Carolina, and a teacher and a coach. And he told me a story recently which really hit home with me. He said, you know, he had a uh, honors uh, advanced placement history class that he was teaching. And he asked them, so these are, these are college-bound students, students that are ready to go to college, and they're prepared, and they've gone through, they've got the best of the school, they've taken the best classes. And he asked them, he said, what have you been taught? I'm just curious, what have you been taught since you were in first grade up until now and you know people take AP history in 11th grade in South Carolina so he's 11th graders he said what have you been taught to be proud of for your native state South Carolina and he said there was a it's a hush and a little hesitation and finally somebody said can't think of anything and when he told me that you know I guess I was aware of it but it blew me away because what bothers me is we've got kids being raised today and going through school and they're not proud of their state they're not proud of south carolina they don't know there's anything to be proud of because the other the i I talked about the revolutionary war for a second yeah but the only thing besides the battle of cowpens is we started the civil war because we all (laughs) and we all know where that goes it just goes downhill from there and then there's nothing else and we could talk for we could talk for five or six podcasts about the so-called quote-unquote starting of the Civil War. And, and may later, that may be something for us to really talk about. But, um, but, you know, once he told me that, I thought, you know, that's completely wrong. These kids in school, uh, and there are a lot of, a lot of children today and, uh, that are getting, getting good history. They're getting good history. Um, and, you know, it depends on the teachers, I guess. depends on, on the curriculum and some of the stuff that they've got. But there's so much to be proud of. For example, you mentioned South Carolina and the Revolution a few minutes ago. You know, more battles of the Revolution were fought in South Carolina than any other state. Now, 
Say that one more time. Yeah, more battles of the Revolution were fought in South Carolina than any other state. You mean even Massachusetts and it, New York and, yeah. and all those can, states? Can you believe that? Now, I'll tell you this much, too, as far as that goes. And uh, we'll talk about some South Carolina first. I wanted to say some things that South Carolina was first in, and that'll really, and we can talk about that probably a for a couple of podcasts because it's a lot of them. It's a long list. There's a lot of things to be proud of. But one thing that I wanted to point out is if you look at and take opportunity next time y'all do this, next time you um, see a, a state trooper's car on the road or anytime you have a chance to see the state seal, that's usually when people have a chance to see it when it's on the side of the highway patrol and you're probably not interested in seeing it then. But if you get a chance, look at the seal of the state of South Carolina. It has two dates on it, March 26th and July 4th. March 26, 1776, is when South Carolina created a new constitution, elected John Rutledge president, and started calling the Provincial Congress the General Assembly. That's when we started calling the legislature the General Assembly. It was under the Constitution of 1776. So South Carolina issued its constitution and really became the first state to declare its independence from Great Britain on March 26, 1776. Now, I'll go ahead, and, and I've got a caveat. You know, my wife's one of my biggest advisors, and she tells me all the time, she says, you know, you might better mention this as a footnote, and she's right. Here's my caveat. If somebody uh, goes to Wikipedia or they go to Google, Google's probably not going to tell you that. <laughs> no, you got to go to the books, the That's ancient right. books. That's right. They're probably going to tell you that Rhode Island is one of the first states to actually declare its independence from Great Britain. But that's based on something that Rhode Island did in May. South Carolina on March 26 created a new constitution. Now, that was essentially declaring its independence from Great Britain because if you recall the Battle of Sullivan's Island, which took place in Charleston where uh, Colonel William Moultrie helped to repulse the British attack, that was June 28, 1776. That was before July 4th. So why was South Carolina fighting the British on June 28th? They'd have essentially already declared their independence. So that's one of the many examples of how South Carolina was first in so many things. And it's right there. It's on the state seal. People can see it. How many South Carolinians know why that date is on our state seal? Let's go back to the Constitution for half a second. We won't, we won't jump into this subject yet, but I think the first podcast talked about Rutledge. He just fascinated me. Oh, yeah. Because Rutledge was called up to New York to be on the Constitution Committee mm -hmm. to draft the new Constitution. Mm -hmm. He is the only man who was there every time the doors open and every time they close. And people, usually on the, the man on the street will tell you Jefferson wrote it. Well, Jefferson was in France. He couldn't write that. That's right. And then they'll say, Benjamin Franklin wrote it. Well, no, because they ta they had men assigned to him to keep him away from that committee because he was so charismatic and so wise. They didn't want Ben Franklin writing the Constitution of the United States. <laughs> so they had this drafting committee together, and they put John Rutledge from South Carolina was elected chairman. That's why I said he was the one there when it opened. He was the one there when it was closed. He was there every single hour that it was being done. And when it was all over... Guess what um, Guess what I heard from a guy in New York had written this. He's an old newspaper man and a playwright. Mm -hmm. guy, his name's on the tip of my tongue, but I'm not going there right now. He said, the Constitution of the United States is eerily similar 
to the Constitution of, South, of the state of South Carolina. Now, we've had five or six, but he wrote the first one. Right. John Rutledge wrote the South Carolina Constitution, right. Right. chaired the national. So the, the South Carolina Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, were eerily similar. And I always say, hey, it is in our DA, DNA to defend the Constitution of the United States. Absolutely. We'll be the last state to go down. Absolutely. It's well put. I because, love it. Because if you, and, and this is something that if people have an opportunity uh, to do this, I'd encourage you to do it. Uh, it's a real history lesson that you can see and feel and hear. But go to John Rutledge's house in Charleston on Broad Street. Yep. Uh, it's one of the few founding fathers' homes that's still standing. Wow. And you can go in there. Now. And as a matter of fact, there's not a lot of the founding fathers' homes still standing. John Rutledge is not only is his still there, but his is as now. I, don't, I can't say this is, as a definite fact, but I'm pretty sure it's the only founding father's home in America which you could spend the night in. Oh, yeah, because it's an inn. That's right. And you can go in there and you can see um, the hall, the big uh, sitting room, smoking room, or whatever you want to call it. And he spent, that was where he did a lot of his legal work, he wrote a lot of the United States Constitution in that room. Wow. Put together a lot of things there. And, you know, everybody's heard about Washington slept here. Washington really did sleep there. <laughs> and so, I mean, he came there and he spent the night there. And so, you know, he thought a lot of John Rutledge. Uh, he appointed John Rutledge to be the second Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. So um, he was not only president of South Carolina, he was governor of South Carolina, he was also chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. And he also was key in appointing Washington general over the troops in the Revolutionary War. Yeah. He but was, he was a very soft-spoken man for the most part. I mean, he was I, a very eloquent speaker. I think so. And I think, uh, I think the man led by, I think Rutledge, man. yeah, I think he read, led by uh, just sheer courage. Um, because during the Revolution, of course, when the British overrun South Carolina, John Rutledge, you know, had to had to flee. I mean, the entire General yeah. Assembly had to flee, and so they basically had to hold, <clears throat> excuse me, had to hold state government wherever they could. So I think he was a courageous man. You know, his brother Edward signed the Declaration of Independence, right? And then John he, he signed was the much Constitution. More flamboyant than yeah. than John was. And both of them became governors. Uh, both of them died the same year. Both of them died in eighteen hundred. And both of them lived on Broad Street in Charleston. But, uh, but yeah, Rutledge was, uh, was an impressive fella and a great connection with the, uh, the partisan leaders of South Carolina. Uh, he really supported Sumter, Marion, and, uh, of course, Andrew Pickens, the Wizard Owl, you know, yeah. who kept the revolution going. And that gets us back to South Carolina wouldn't give up. That's why there were more battles fought here than any other state because the, the militia would not back away, primarily because Sumter refused to give up. Well, you know, when um, when Lexington and Concord and and all of the our northern brothers who were who had been fighting, they just their their arms were depleted and they were begging for assistance. Uh, South Carolina had captured munitions right from the British right. down at Hobcaw, yeah, and they sent that up north. That's what kept the revolution going in the north for a season. So see, that's a great point. A lot of people don't remember that. A lot of people don't forget. They, people forget that stuff took place. And, you know, when I, um, when I taught some of my college classes, I would tell them, I said, you know, Cornwallis's plan was to roll up South Carolina and to take it back. And if 
and George Washington was having trouble in the north, you know, and to just roll up through there and crush him in the middle after he took North Carolina and Virginia. So South Carolina, keeping Cornwallis here, kept the revolution going and Mm -hmm. kept it alive. Now, they were successful in overrunning South Carolina when Charleston fell in 1780. They pretty much overrun the state. Um, Tarleton was out doing doing all the damage that he did across South Carolina. And if it hadn't have been for Thomas Sumter saying that he was absolutely not going to give up and he went and collected some men and they just started fighting a partisan war, him and the Swamp Fox, Francis Marion, and then, of course, up here in the upcountry, you know, Andrew Pickens, if it hadn't been for those three men refusing to give up, everybody said it was over in South Carolina and the British were ready to leave, but they wouldn't stop pestering them. They kept cutting their lines of communication. Every time they'd move out, they'd swerve around behind them and they'd, They'd take a bunch of wagon trains, or they'd take a bunch of provisions, or they'd take a bunch of ammunition, you know, or they'd cut this off, or they'd cut that off, or they'd take this fort here, or they'd overrun this. And, you know, um, one of the things you think about, uh, you know, Tarleton decided one day he was going to take out the swamp fox, and so he chased him, as I recall, for over three hours through the swamps. And it was just like it is now. If If you're in South Carolina, you're familiar with our humidity and the temperature, you know, it was a... It was 100% humidity. You know, the humidity was oppressive. The heat was intense. And it was like, do people really live here? Yeah, the mosquitoes (laughs) were overwhelming. And he chased him through the swamps for over three hours and never caught a glimpse of him. And finally, you know, he said, you know, um, enough of this darned old fox. The devil himself couldn't catch him. Let's go back pick a fight with a gamecock. And so the gamecock, of course, is Thomas Sumter. And so that's how he's going to go back. He knew Sumter would come out and fight. And, of course, Marion would, too, but he would only do it if he was going to win. Otherwise, he'd disappear into the bushes. That's right. That's how you win a war. That's right. And so they turned guerrilla warfare, and that kept Cornwallis in South Carolina, kept him occupied so that George Washington could keep working in the north. So I've told people many times, as a matter of fact, um, I'm going to take it a little step further. I know there's people that will disagree with me, but I'm going to tell you this. You could even make the argument that the revolution— was one in and around Spartanburg County. And uh, so, you know, I'll put it this way. Um, basically, what had happened was you had, um, you had the partisans fighting the war. But what had happened, what really come along was finally, uh, when Tarleton decided he was going to get Thomas Sumter and he was going to take him out, he chased him right to the Spartanburg County line. And Sumter crossed the Tiger River right down here below where Spartanburg County comes into Union County, right there. It's actually on the Union County side, but it's right on the river. It's right mm-hmm. on this county line at the Battle of Blackstock. Blackstock, yeah. And that's where Tarleton caught Thomas Sumter. And Sumter decided he'd, he'd turn and he'd fight. He knew he was being pursued, and so he, he, uh, he evaded Tarleton for a couple of days, but he knew he was going to catch him. And finally, Tarleton left his heavy artillery and kept, took his cavalry and chased him down. So when he knew he was going to be caught, Sumter picked a great defensive position right there on the Tiger River, and he turned and prepared, and he got ready for him. And at that point, he actually outnumbered Tarleton. But it was primarily Carolina militia. And that was the first time, uh, some people will argue with this, I know, but I think you can make the case that was one of the first times that Carolina militia actually defeated British regulars. Wow. And they won that battle in November of 1780. And that was after South Carolina had failed. Well, of course, what that did was that's you know that was right after Kings Mountain. Kings Mountain was in October. Then you had Blackstock's right on the heel of that, and that led right into 
Calpians in January. And so Calpians, again, the town of Calpians is in Spartanburg County. The battlefield was actually in today's Cherokee County. But oh, yeah. that at that time was still what they call the Spartan District. So you could actually make the argument because Calpians really ended, you know, the revolution because by at that point, uh, Cornwallis just decided to evacuate South Carolina. It was gone. There was no reason to mess with it at that point. So when Daniel Morgan won at Calpians, Cornwallis decided just to leave, and the rest is history. He headed right up through North Carolina, right through Guilford, Guilford. Courthouse, yep. and all the way up to Yorktown. Yeah. So really, you could say South Carolina and Spartanburg County contributed to that. I think that... Um, if anybody, if anybody listening, if you ever have an opportunity, I would encourage people to get Dr. Landrum's History of Spartanburg County. J.B.O. Landrum, I have that. It's a great book. Great book. And get Dr. Landrum's History of Spartanburg County. He goes very well in depth into that. And he's also got another one that he did called The Colonial History of the Upcountry, which was written about the same time. It's a good book to get, and it explains a lot of that. There's so much that happened history-wise in South Carolina. There's so much to be proud of. I mean, we could just scratch the surface. We could go on talking about it from now on. Well, you know, um, I want to point this out to you. Over there near um, the E.P. Todd School, actually, I think there's soccer fields there now. Fair Forest Creek, I believe, runs through there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The skirmishes that led up to the Battle of Cowpens actually started down in that area. That's right. And there were skirmishes all the way up to Cowpens. That's right. So that is in the heart of Spartanburg. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. Oh, okay, well... We got way deviated on that first point, so <laughs> where are we now? What's the next great thing about South Carolina? <laughs> well, we talk, started talking about the revolution, and we had so much to say about John Rutledge. Um, that is one of the one of the main points about it. But I've got a couple of other things I wanted to kind of list that I've got here. Oh, oh Rob, I know the first department store was in Charleston. That's important. There you go. There you go. Good, another good thing to put. That's exactly right. Well, I've got an interesting list of stuff here, and I've got I've got a couple of books that I've that I've referenced this in. One and and a great historian, William Gilmore Sims, great South Carolina historian, wrote several histories of South Carolina, and his his daughter went on to update and revise a lot of his histories, and these were used as textbooks in the schools of South Carolina for years up until the nineteen seventies. Wow. So this is one of them, and it's got uh, a list of things here, things that, and, and we can pull out a few of them. One, of course, is, which I thought was interesting, is the uh, first, and I believe it's put like this, the first free museum, the first free museum in America. Wow. And let's see here, that was, yeah, the first public museum is the way it's put. And this is 1773 is what this book says. The first public museum in America was in Charleston. But even before that, we want to talk about the first public library. Now, again, i got the caveat. If you go to Google and you Google this stuff, it's going to tell you the first public library in America was probably in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But what we've got here, this, that can be... Um, that could be contested, and I think these books here pretty well establish it. The first free public library in America was started in Charleston, somewhere between 1695 and 1698. And this was while Blake was governor. It was established for the citizens in Charlestown, according to William Gilmore Sims, the first of its kind in America. And, it's, and he says here, it shows that Carolinians, despite their troubles, were making progress and proves also that many of the early settlers were people of culture who were eager to improve their minds, even while undergoing the hardships of a pioneer life. So that was in the 1690s, one of the first public libraries, and probably the first public library in America. 
So that's just one of the many firsts right there. But um, this also goes on and mentions a couple of other things. It also talks about the uh, St. Cecilia Society. Now, if anybody ever has, has an opportunity, uh, uh, you can go down Meeting Street in Charleston, and you'll go by Hibernian Hall, which is down there on the right-hand side when you, get, when you start getting down lower into the battery. You'll see that. That, as I recall, if I'm, if I'm not incorrect, I believe that's where the St. Cecilia Society was housed. And that was started in 1762, and is probably the first musical society in America. Oh, wow. Well, you know, the things you're saying, all of the, the culture, et cetera, it's not surprising because prior to, prior to the Civil War, I mean, from the beginning to the, mm-hmm. even up to the Civil War, South Carolina had more inventoried wealth than any other colony, which is, includes Boston and New York and, Good point. Right. and uh, Philadelphia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We had more inventoried wealth, and that's one reason as I understand it, that Great Britain left us alone mm-hmm. when they were really aggravating the other colonies. We had created, by that time, we had created Indigo, which is Eliza right. Pinckney, the right. businesswoman. Right. And, um, of course, rice and, and different things. We were, a, um, we were a major exporter that brought great wealth to Great Britain. So they sort of let us be the favored child and let us get away with a lot of things. You're exactly right. And there's right. a lot of freedom here. And interestingly enough, South Carolina is the first state that own, openly welcomed the Jewish community and allowed them to thrive. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of wealth in South Carolina. That's right. Staggering wealth. That's right. So it's not surprising that you would have public libraries, um, musical societies. That's right. Um of course, we ended up with the, not the first college, but the first college in South Carolina Right, was the College of Charleston. That's exactly right. So it's, and that's another first, too, you mentioned, and I'm glad you brought that up. The College of Charleston was 1785, and that was the first municipal college in the United States. Really? Established in South Carolina. Um, well, you know what happened with that? When Rutledge went up to New York, to, for the Continental uh, Convention, uh, the, the Constitutional Convention, he saw the college up there, and he went, you know, we need one of these in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So Rutledge came back and started the College of Charleston. That's how that happened. Right, right. It, it's good to travel and find out how the people live. Well, you're exactly right. It's a lot of fun, too. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and that's right. A lot of the leaders of South Carolina, there had been such wealth uh, in South Carolina that a lot of the leaders had most had been educated abroad. Most had gone to Cambridge, Oxford. Most had been educated London, in England. Yeah. In fact, um, John Rutledge was taught to be a Carolina barrister, just like Thomas Lynch, Jr., who's one of the founding fathers who disappeared. You know, he disappeared at sea. They were they were given, as as, uh, as some of the books point out, you know, they, they had the minds of English barristers. Um, they were taught over there to be attorneys, but they... they came back and they were Carolina planners and that type of thing is kind of their lifestyle. I have a book at home called Planners, Pirates, and Patriots, and that's what it points out about Thomas Lynch, that he had the mind of an English barrister and the, but the heart of a Carolina rice planter. But you're right about that. And you want to go back to something else you mentioned about Eliza Lucas. Um, 
she, her father was, was gone for a good period of time, and so she was such an intelligent person that her father left her in complete control of their plantation. That is huge. And she developed indigo. Yeah. She was a brilliant lady. And she had a great head for business, and she made the plantation successful. She introduced indigo to South Carolina. As anybody, uh, as everybody knows, I hope you know that was your blue dye that we grew that was very valuable. It did connect Carolina planters with the mother country. They had a lot of connection with England, and in the beginnings, there was a lot of loyal loyalty and a lot of loyalists in South Carolina because of that. In fact, at one time, and still people call Charleston one of the most English cities in America and so they were connected to the mother country and so South Carolina was was hesitant at first you know to break away which I think showed their conservative nature well also they knew they had it well under Great Britain right so they had right I mean it took it took a huge effort to pull South Carolina planters away from the mother country because of the economic connection there when when the Stamp Act was repealed by Parliament, uh, and there it was a statue in Charleston to William Pitt because he pushed Parliament to repeal the Stamp Act. When it was repealed, uh, South Carolina rejoiced because you know it looked like that, that the problems had been passed and that that Parliament was listening right. to what the Americans were saying. So there was there was great celebrations in Charleston because the Stamp Act was repealed. But then they went back again, and and this happens so often, and that's when the tea tax and all the other taxes were imposed later, and all that did is drive and push people away. You know, a a more prudent policy in Parliament back then would probably have kept, you know, the American colonies uh, loyal because they wanted to be. Their conservative nature, you know, uh, dictated that. But they just couldn't leave it alone. The taxation and the government control and the, the excessive... Control the excessive government growth, (laughs) all that stuff, and that's why you need to know your history because it repeats itself. I'm just saying that's exactly right. (laughs) People need to be familiar with that stuff. You know, you mentioned Eliza Lucas a minute ago. That that's one of my favorite stories too. I love that because you know she went on to marry Charles Pinckney. Charles Pinckney was uh, was uh, several years older than her, but their son. Their sons became, uh, I believe, Charles Charles Coatsworth Pinckney was their son. Okay, well, you know Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of revolutionary fame, but his parents were brilliant people, and he was a brilliant man. And Charles Coatsworth Pinckney not only contributed so much to the founding of this country and, his, and leader of South Carolina, but he was a great Christian leader. In fact, one of the late, last things he did in life, this is Eliza Lucas's son, one of the last things he was doing in the later years of his life was trying to keep the Bible Society going. He really wanted to distribute the gospel and 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 you know advance that. So there was that's not in Wikipedia. I'll guarantee it. Leaders, <laughs> no, you'll not see it, but it's all over. I mean, I've got a I've got another uh, great book at home by a gentleman named John Idesmo called Christianity and the Constitution, and it goes into the Christian faith of a lot of the founding fathers, and he really goes in depth to Charles Coatsworth Pinckney's dedication to the gospel. Oh, I did not realize that that was that strong there. So Charles Charles Pinckney Sr. And, and his wife Eliza Lucas Pinckney were not only brilliant people and good good businessmen and, and, and knowledgeable, educated people, but they were good Christian leaders too. Good. Rob, this is fun, but we probably need to run. So 
hold on we'll we'll come back because we haven't we haven't even scratched the surface of Carolina first I don't think that's right that's I think right. there's a lot more to cover here so until we meet again we'll talk soon what well, sounds great thank you there you have it hope y'all enjoyed that as much as we did like I said before we hope to have Mr. Chumley back as often as he is able so he will definitely be a familiar voice for y'all to be hearing we think we've got a, a regular schedule figured out so look for new episodes around the 1st and the 15th so just subscribe to us on whatever your preferred podcasting platform is and that way you'll always be up to date on new episodes if you have any questions or comments, feel free to send them to us at Carolina Chronicles Podcast at gmail.com or you can tweet us at SC Chronicles Pod. Alrighty, that's it for this episode. See you next time.